So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. As always, you can find us on social media. So on Facebook, if you type Folk on Falcons in, you'll see our picture. And on Twitter, it's simply that it's the same, but it's at Folk on Falcons and you'll see our picture again. So a bit of the end of the season now. Things have actually improved over the last couple of weeks, but a little bit too little too late maybe. So we're going to talk about our defeat to sale, although we got a bonus point. Look ahead to next game. And obviously chat about a few comings and goings and some general rugby matters. So so although we went in at the break and it seemed like we'd had a good half, there were still large parts where we're a bit inconsistent. And I think to score two tries obviously good and to go in ahead is good, but we can still feel like we left something out there in that first half. Yeah, um as you say, I think it was it was more positive. Um, I thought with ball in hand attacking they did look more of a threat. To go in leading away to sell is no small feet. Sale obviously weren't at their best that half, but even as you say, neither were we really. But you know, we there were, I think, sort of many ways deservedly ahead at half time, and it was definitely an improvement. Second half, however, is when sort of things kind of fell apart a little bit. It wasn't as bad as we have been seeing recently, um, but it was just sort of defensive frailties, really, and especially sort of quick ball around the edges of we just couldn't really cope with it, and that was a, sort of the killer for them. Um, it's a shame, really. And I, you know, it's not the end of the world, obviously, coming away from there with a bonus point. It was obviously a good thing they got to try at the end to get that. But yeah, I mean, more positives. Tinge a little bit of disappointment because it could have been better. But you know, at this stage of the season, it's all about, I suppose, getting as many points as we can, try and not finish bottom, uh, finish higher at the tables we can, really. Obviously, we started off quite well, got a try ahead in the first 10 minutes or so, which we seem to be making a bit of a habit of, which is obviously a good one. The Guggen again. But then. They scored on very similar to ours. It's just a rolling mall that we couldn't defend. But um, the rather aptly named make piece refereeing. Um, I feel that both of Sale's first half tries, the truck and trailer, and just seems that it was let go, or the TMO, I'm sure, would get stuck in and rule them out if we'd have scored them. But Van der Merwe, you could see it on the first one, especially. There was a time when he was, um, he must have had his fingertips attached to the shorts of the man in front, and that was it. There wasn't a full arm bind there, and it was just let go, and obviously then they score. Probably wasn't the sole reason that we gave away the tries, but it's certainly frustrating to see. Yeah, um, I think you know that. That being said, still, I think their their pack was no one say dominant, but it was you know you can see where it's one of their strengths. I mean, they're they're enormous. I, I was saying on the boots radio, Newcastle culture about how enormous they were as well, um, and that is obviously a real strength for them in well, example in in the driving malls, um, and. Uh, and that, that's what probably face, isn't it, really? Is that, you know, we can put in a better performance, but I think in order to beat these teams, we really have to be absolutely kind of top of our game. And we can't sort of give these other teams a real sniff. We have to be solidly defensively. And unfortunately, we just weren't. And that, that's really the difference in the end, despite an improved performance. I think there must have been called Le before the South Africans joined and they had the SA for sale because there was nine or ten South Africans on the pitch at one point for sale and you think yeah it's English rugby but are they just, is it right that they just buy a team from South Africa that have eaten all the biltong they can find and 15 foot tall 18 foot wide it's not really fair but um, you look at our plucky academy and they just import the whole of the South Africans so I don't know it gives you a bit of pride when you see our Northeast Academy holding them for the first half but then at the same time their, their pace power quickness it paid and they just smashed us up around the edge for the whole second half quick ball at the breakdown running in the narrow channels they just bulldozed their way through and got these half breaks and yeah they made it up the pitch 
Well, I mean, that's sort of been a consistent weakness for us. I think recently as well, especially kind of around the fridges, um, quick ball, we seem to be undone quite easily midfield with that, um, which is obviously a bit of a worry. And that's what a lot of good teams do. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's a technology we just couldn't cope with that. And I think ultimately that that sort of was the difference. And that's well, and that is a difference between a team like us and a team like Sale, who I suppose in many ways, if you probably ask their supporters, sort of have underperformed this year. I mean, they're only two points, two positions ahead of us in the league. Obviously, it's a huge points chasm but you know perhaps you with the money they've spent and with the players they have you would expect them to have been charging higher up the league so you know that that I wouldn't say torn to shreds but to, to see the difference in quality that was on show especially in that second half from a team which is only two positions above us in the league kind of shows the ground that we have to kind of make up as, as quickly as possible if we want to try and be more competitive and, and actually win some games because it's what 12 defeats, 12 league defeats in 13 league games played. And, you know, that's just, just not good enough, despite obviously the improved performance and, you know, BS had got a bonus point. You know, th- that that needs to change. And that's that's obviously the, the major worry. Yeah, and it has to be said that that victory was against an abysmal Worcester team. So if we just look at our team, I think that one of the things we've whinged and moaned about quite a bit over the course of the season has been the centres, especially defensively. Stevenson obviously paired up with Orlando this week. Orlando, who's obviously signed another two-year deal. I think if the two of those stay fitter, over the future then we've got a number of problems solved I think it actually looked quite good the two of those playing together both in attack and defence we seemed a bit more organised and Stevenson made a couple of very good half breaks um, getting on the outside especially in the first half there was one where I think he got away and then put Carreras away it was just before our first try and why it wasn't a penalty try for that high tackle on Carreras I don't know maybe it was a bit too far out but there was no one else covering and he was tackled high penalty given and I don't know why it wasn't a penalty try he stopped the man scoring a try through foul play. Yeah, uh, but there's also something Canison, wasn't there? The odd one with Ferns later on the second half, wasn't there? When he was actually the ball carrier and uh, the sale player got Sinbin, even though he was off getting head injury, which shows you what kind of, you know, what Ferns is all about, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm telling you, it's interesting with Stevenson in centres because we were saying last year how um, when he did have to go, there's kind of emergency, it didn't really kind of work. And, he may, you know, he was kind of thrown the deep end and sent it off. Obviously, we know he's a really good winger. Uh, but I think on Friday was possibly, all things considered, he probably hasn't played there for a while. Um, all things considered, he was pretty decent in centres there. And if, you know, it's it's interesting conundrum, I suppose. Do do you, with Carreras obviously staying and you obviously, Brad Ryan will be a shoo-in. Um, do you now, is Stevenson now the answer to our polling centres with him in Orlando? Presumably, you'll but, you know, hoping Orlando can stay fit because if he can kind of adapt to centres, then we've got a real threat there. Um, so that that could be a nice sort of, well, I wouldn't say surprise, but that could be a nice bonus for us going forward. So, But it was encouraging, actually, right? His performance both in defence and ball in hand was encouraging because if he can get a break in the centres, then, you know, you know what's, you know, like very likely good things are going to happen. As you say, there's almost that incident with Carreras. Yeah, um, I think he played centre quite a bit in his earlier days before he's professional um, I think when he came through I think Yarm school and things he was playing a reasonable amount of centres there and then I think when he got put in there last season it was obviously his first proper stab at um, professional rugby or the last couple of years has been and he might have just been caught out by the the sheer step up in calibre but maybe the time he spent on the wing and growing a bit more experienced he's now sussed it out somewhat and hopefully he becomes quite a good centre into the future because he's got that pace that is rare amongst uh, centres a lot of centres tend to be a bit slower and they might make the outside break, but they don't necessarily get away from the winger, but Stevenson kind of carves through. And I think in the, the match early in the season against Saracens, when he went around the outside of Owen Farrell, he showed just what he's about when he gets that little bit of space. He almost plays like a, 
a winger in the centres in certain respects. When he gets that half yard, he's gone. Well, another thing I noticed during the game seems to be that the definition of a ruck doesn't matter anymore. So as I was concerned, it was always players on their feet competing for a ball. Whereas it seems that make piece or general referees is pile of bodies equals ruck. And there was a time when, um, well, there were a few times in the match, one that particularly stood out was Radwan made a, a break down the wing, he kicked it ahead, Sale got the ball, Ruck formed, pile of bodies, there got three or four Falcons players basically ready to go around the side and pick the ball out. And the referee said, no, it's a Ruck, get back. And you think, well, it's not actually technically a Ruck. There's no one on their feet competing for it, therefore, ball is out, no offside lines, get on with it. As opposed to then wait another 30 seconds for Faf to play to do a box kick. It's one of those things that's... Annoying a bit, but what can you do about it if the referees have that interpretation which is just made up on the spot or dictated from above, I don't know. And then you, you just touched on it a bit earlier. There was the incident with Ferns getting his head banged and I'm pretty sure if Ferns had gone down the same way that the sale player had gone down, it would have been a red card. But obviously Ferns' skull's made of granite or something similar. So he just kind of bounced off him and carried on, whereas sale player went down and that drew the referee's attention to it. But I um, still can't quite work out why it wasn't a red card. Um, considering some of the ones we've seen this season, the referee kind of said he wasn't going for the tackle or it wasn't a committed tackle, which is a load of nonsense as far as I'm concerned. He, he tackled him with his head. Well, yeah, that's a good point because initially, well, initially at real speed and slow down, you think that could be a red card. I mean, it's contact with the head, but they were, far as I can remember, they were saying the mitigation was the fact that the tackler was kind of, he had no momentum or something like that, they were saying. Um, he was more stationary. He wasn't kind of, there was no momentum going into the tackle. He was just kind of in the way and his contact was with the head. But I mean, I mean, I don't know, does it matter in terms of the force of contact? Is it not just the fact that there is some sort of contact with the head is enough for a red card? Well, reckless contact certainly with the head. Is that not enough for the red card? Does it, does it matter if there was no force or quote-unquote momentum behind the tackle or not? Because surely that doesn't matter. I would have thought that it would be a red if it is just reckless direct contact with, with the head. Oh, yes, he was r- rather standing still when he tackled him, but he tackled him in an upright position. And if you remember Callum Trick's red card earlier this season, when, oh, who, what was it, who, who dropped down? Um, it was Josh Hodge, wasn't it? And... He dropped down 18 inches, two feet before the tackle and Chick was committed to it and he couldn't do much about it. So what you're saying that if someone isn't running forwards, they don't have to tackle with the same responsibility? Hmm, not so sure on that one. I'm pretty sure if Carl Ferns had been the one doing the headbutting, not the other way around, then he would have got red. But either way, maybe it's good they only gave away a yellow card because as was shown when those 14 men, we were the ones that ended up worst off. Yeah, well, it's not the first time this has happened, isn't it? And I think this goes down to sort of game management, doesn't it? Um, Harlequin's away, obviously, being the standout incident for that. But but this one, again, I think it's happened a couple times at home as well, where, you know, we've had the man advantage and we just haven't, we haven't taken advantage ourselves. Obviously, we haven't scored the drives up, put the points on. But we've had it a couple of times this season where, you know, we've actually let the other side in. They've actually looked better ball in hand and they've scored from it. And they've looked actually better in that 10-minute period than we have. And that's just obviously really poor game management, isn't it? It seems to be that for everyone else, <laughs> getting a, the yellow card is an advantage apart from for us. But um, yeah, it, but that's just sort of one of the underlying sort of failures or faults that has been this season, really. But it was shown again to unfortunately that probably killer effect on the Friday. I mean, if the hell sale out there, or obviously if we'd scored some points, even if we'd got a penalty or so, or so, then completely different end of the game, isn't it? Then we're still right in the game, could have come away with two bonus points, but then no, because we didn't see out that 10 minutes, then we only came away with one. We well, say a lot of game management, etc. But um the fundamentals of that was just the fact that we had that line out five meters out and messed it up. And that's not game management. That's just 
playing when the pressure's on and executing things clinically. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that's has been another recurring theme in the past few weeks. Our line now just seems to have, hasn't been functioning as well. Um, I mean, one of the strengths earlier on in the season was our set piece was actually pretty good, line that's included, but it's happened too often. I mean, it happened, it's happened the past few weeks where we've been in really good positions and the lineups just completely gone to port and, you know, obviously like that just isn't good enough and whatever whatever reason that is for, whether it's somebody with, with the coaching or preparing it or the personnel or whatever. I mean, who knows? There's so many factors going to get your line out to work. But, you know, that being said, you know, you're five metres from the line, you've got to just play it simple, secure the ball, then, you know, do what you can from there. And again, it's not doing the basics and it's poor game management and that's what's undoing for us. Certainly is. But um, I think there's got to be a few silver linings there. We've mentioned the centres played well. I think also Metro's got to Joel Hodgson because we've not always been his uh, biggest singer of his praises. However, the last three or four games when he's coming off the bench or started, he's looked really lively. And I think he reminds me a bit of pre-COVID, pre-injury at Harlequins, that horrible injury got to his leg when we were sat on the ground when he was looking like a really good fly half and he seems to be getting that form again um is it confidence he there's a few times he jinked around people ran with it he scored two tries in two games although both of them have been pretty much walk-ins but even so he's got to get the ball down and um he's looking really promising it's just a shame it's so late in the season yeah I mean, we all know confidence is a huge thing in sport i mean maybe the fact that he kind of i mean who knows but maybe the fact that he may feel he, he's now the time to step up. Obviously, Hayden Wood's going, you know, got a new fly half coming in. Um, you know, you may sort of think now or never. And it all could just be a factor that he has just, you know, these things happen in sport, you just do suddenly hit form. But it's not just his general players. He says look very lively. It's his goal kicking as well. Yes, I know he missed, you know, a couple of, of awkward ones the other night. But I think generally, I think his goal kicking has actually been improving. Um, over the past few weeks, I mean, his general sort of play has actually gone up a level. And you're right, it's a shame, obviously, there's only a couple of games left. I guess all we can do is hope that that's kind of carried forward ne- next year because he kind of dropped out of the picture, didn't he? He was, wasn't even on the bench. He was, you know, it was only, he was only coming on the bench because obviously Hayden Wood departed, so obviously he didn't fly off there. But actually, he's really stepped into the plate and, you know, and let's hope that continues into next season, I suppose. Certainly. So you, you touched on it there about um, the fly-half situation. If we just go on to the comings and goings, um, this week, I think, well, it might be last week, but since the last podcast, we've had Collins being confirmed for two more years, which we know what we're going to get there. Pleased with that. be interesting to see how, between him, Hodgson, as we just mentioned, and Schumann, who's now been confirmed as well, um, whether the, which of the three of them takes the lead in terms of fly-half duties or whether maybe Schumann might end up playing a bit of centre or Conan might play... Uh, elsewhere, we've seen at times Hodgson start at fullback. So it's one of these ones where who knows how it'll end up, but we've got three five halves that are all going to be pushing each other onwards and hopefully competing for that 10 jersey. Couple of departures we've got Marshall, back rower. He's going off to New Zealand to play for um, it's not one of the, the major rugby teams there, it's kind of the, the tier down, but hopefully that's a good exposure from over the summer. And I think he's due back next autumn. I'm not sure if he's due back at the Falcons or whether he's just there for a fixed period and he'll try and find a club when he comes back but um, best of luck to him. Not confirmed yet, but it sounds like Ferrar is off to Ealing. Another prospect in the pack. Um, shame to be losing him. He's always played well when he's made his appearances. Brocklebank's extension has been confirmed. I think we're pleased with that one, given the way he's been performing as of late. He's turned into a very good front row, and it wouldn't surprise me if he gets into the Saxons squad or something like that, the way he's playing, because it seems very reminiscent of Davison last year in the way that um, he's kind of come onto the scene and really held it down in the Premiership. And then, yes, they're the, they're the comings and goings of this week. But it was making me thinking that we've now got Schumann, Passman, 
and Palfram are on the books. Obviously, Passman's still, I think, got um, trying to overcome that leg injury. I'm not sure if he's going to remain in the squad, but in the northeast, it's certainly an interesting thing to have as a suffix to your surname is man. Because we've got Schumann, everyone will be expecting him to kick it when someone shouts Schumann. You've got Passman, obviously, very obvious what you'd want him to do. And then you've got Palframan. And I did, I did some etymology of names. Any idea what a Palframan is? Um, I don't. Unless it's listening to brush up on my Anglo-Saxon or something. <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm afraid. So Palframan comes from Palfrey, being a particularly docile horse from the Germanic Palfrey of Horsel, an archaic term for an, a sort of horse that had a interesting walking motion where they it means that the rider is nice and settled for the king or the prince of whoever's riding the, the horse that moves its legs in a certain sequence. So Palfrey is the docile horse amongst the squad, whereas you've got the passer and the kicker. Anyway, there you go. Um, <laughs> just some drivel that I was thinking of on the train the other day. And then I think the other main bit of news to discuss there um, when we're talking about comings and goings is a rather interesting story in the rugby paper this week about Gusted and the offer of head of rugby or director of rugby or whatever position's actually called, um, and he's turned it down. Yeah, um, one to kind of get tongues wagging, various eyebrows being raised. Um, I mean, those who don't know, I mean, Justin does have links to Newcastle. You think he's from Newcastle, isn't he? Um, and in some ways, I guess that's um, a kind of a logical choice to sort of inquire about that. But I mean, on one hand, we've guessed that obviously his recent record hasn't been wonderful. You know, he's been fairly successful on the front, fairly well thought of in the past, but of course he had a bit of disastrous spell recently at Harlequins where they got rid of him and then they ended up winning the league. But it's interesting that obviously he says he wants to sell his contract at Treviso and maybe it's an unfortunate indictment of the way things are at the moment at the club where he's more interested in seeing out his contract at Treviso than he is in coming back to his hometown club. I mean, would we want him? I don't know. Possibly, maybe. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's any, for me, it's not someone who would I would be jumping around with joy in getting. Uh, but would it be improving on what we have? Possibly. But it looks like it's all academics are going to happen anyway. But yeah, it, I mean, on one hand, it is worried that yeah, I think he has turned us down being a local lad and all that. But also... I think it's encouraging that we are looking outside the club as opposed to just looking at it internally. I mean, there was talk about Dave Walder, but maybe the maybe it could be the fact he he could be leaving if they are having to look outside the club. So, you know, all sorts obviously going to be going on over the next few weeks behind doors to try and get a new director of rugby in. Yeah, it's um, one of these ones where obviously nothing's confirmed, but as of late, the rugby paper haven't got a huge amount wrong. When they publish these things, there tends to be some basis to it. And... Highlights a few things. You've got the fact that Dean Richards was first rumoured to be leaving in the paper, and he did. Or it's been now confirmed that he'll be stepping down. But then, has that decision been made without a replacement lined up? Rather ballsy decision if that's the case. But then it also brings into the fact: Do we want a coach who has been effectively not a failure? That's harsh. But do we want a coach who doesn't set the world alight? There's been rumours of Diamond as well. Um, he has hardly done a wonderful job over the last few years. He's he obviously, after we beat Sale shortly after that game a couple of seasons ago, he left there. And we've been rumoured to have chats with him. I'm not sure whether there's any basis to them. But are we looking in the right place for a coach if we go for a tried and tested one? Or is it just failures, the ones in the market? Are we better off going for a, a Joe Shaw trying to get Phil Dowson back? These people that have been linked with the club in the past, weren't their colours elsewhere, might want that opportunity to step up? Or would they just see us as a stepping stone and then 
two or three years' time, they'd be off. What's what's the best thing for the club? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's a hard one, especially as a sort of club in our position. But I think, I always think you want to avoid getting the position like, you see a lot in football, actually, where you see a merry-go-round and the same mediocre kind of management. And I think you, you get that less in rugby, I think, just because of the nature of the fewer teams or whatever. But, you know, you I don't think we want to be in a position where we just kind of get as you say, sort of Steve Diamonds, you know, the run of the mill, you know, have been kind of so-so over the past few years, you know, huge improvements are needed on the pitch of the Falcons. And I don't think someone like that is the right sort of person to, to do that. I've, you know, we talk about how if there is no relegation, is it time to experiment? You know, some teams have. We're doing that to extend by playing, you know, academy and whatever. The point you made about, you know, should we be getting sort of a more younger up and, up and coming coach? Maybe it's a chance to do that. I think I would rather we did that than we did get a sort of a run of the mill, so-so, you know, director of rugby, merry-go-round candidate. I'd very rather we did give that a go. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If it does work out, then great. You know, obviously we're a better team and we can enjoy a year or two years until maybe they do move on. But I think I would rather have that because then if you can get a coach that does improve us, then we are in a better position to then get a, a better replacement coach, you know, if we are a better team. I think, you know, we can't really get much lower than we are now. And it is going to be, unfortunately, very, very difficult. So I think I would be happy to take the risk, actually, with a, a young up-and-coming coach rather than, as I say, one who's kind of, you know, been around and not really adding much to the sport anymore. So how much time would you give them? If you were to give them the job, would you give the young upcoming coach six months, a season, a year and a half? At what point, if things aren't being delivered, do you think, whoops, Daisy, rolled the dice here, got a double one, pull the trigger and find somebody else? Um, again, that's a tough one to answer, but I think unless things are absolutely so unbelievably diabolical, I think I would give a season. As I say, there is no relegation. And I think if you do have a young coach, you have to give them a bit of time. And to be honest, could it be any worse than it is now in many ways? Um, so I, I think you've got to be fair and, and give a bit of time. But if if you go for a full season and things are quite clearly not working out, then you know I think you, in professional sport you've got to you've got to swing the axe. At this stage, at least that is a risk I would personally think is worth taking. So if you think of candidates, obviously I mentioned Joe Shaw and Phil Dowson, just off the top of my head, players that have a link to the club, but, or coaches that have a link to the club in the past playing days, but is there anybody else that you particularly like to see? Uh, I think you mentioned before Phil Dowson. I mean, in terms of a coach, he's been doing wonders um, with, with Northampton, hasn't he? Um, and I, I think someone like that, and especially the bonus, obviously he's a, a legend at the club anyway and I think someone like that would be the absolute perfect candidate for us um, off the top of my head I can't really for anyone else but before you mentioned him I think he would be my, my top one and someone like him would be absolutely perfect um, who you would have with him as a coaching staff absolutely no idea but I think someone if not him then someone of his ilk would be the best candidate yeah, and I guess that kind of brings on to one more thing um, with the moving on of Dean Richards and supposing there's a someone turning over a new leaf will there be a complete clear out or will we retain the Scott McLeods and everybody else? Well, that's another big question. Is I mean, it's seems to be fairly common knowledge now that you're going to get Eric uh, stop crash bashing around the background. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he was coming. That was me thinking you were looking at one night stand walking out of the house. No, just no, Eric walking through the background. No, I just turned up. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, that, I mean, that, that's the other big question, isn't it? In terms of. You know, who in the other coaching staff who stays and who goes? I mean, it seems to be Nick, Nick Easter is fairly certainly going now. That's been widely reported. But yeah, interesting with your Scott McLeods and, and mentioned before Dave Walders. I mean, are they, we, we just don't know, do we? You know, are they part of, of the problem in terms of the, 
the way we've been performing so badly, or is it more fall at Dean Richards' plate more? If there was a director of rugby, would these coaches be better, or is it just kind of part of the same package? I think that probably you should just have a clear out and have a completely new set of coaching staff in. Whether that's going to happen, I don't know, because obviously that's much more expensive. But you know, it's going to be a very interesting summer in terms of for one's kind of coaching turnaround, which is not something we have very often over the past few years you know it'd be interesting but we'll hide behind the sofa a bit and see what happens at the start of the next season and see who is actually there because you know as fans we're, we're absolutely none the wiser at the moment yeah um, I don't actually think that getting rid of Scott McLeod et al would be the necessarily the right solution because apart from the last couple of months our lineouts for the last two three years have actually been relatively successful as of the scrummaging with Mickey Ward I think the main issues have been our defence in certain areas and our complete lack of strategy or attacking impetus so maybe it's kind of a, a more precision sort of exercise of who stays and who goes as opposed to complete clear out and you've also got to think who we're going to find to replace them one thing i would say about scott mcleod is when you go to the matches he's always uh, walking around behind the posts catching balls spinning them on his fingers and showing off his overarm 40 yard throws back to the kicker and all that he's uh quite impressive just to see him lobbing it miles sometimes but um Apart from that, I'm sure he does a lot of work behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, no, that fair enough. That is a good point. I mean, maybe it's just sort of a pruning required rather than proper root and branch clear out. You know, you mentioned obviously the likes of Scott McLeod and, and Mickey Ward and these sort of coaches who are very much fabrics of the club. And I suppose if you do get a new coaching regime in, then perhaps you do want some established figures in there to kind of steady the ship and to have that continuity. So. If you have, look, it's always very difficult to get a good balance with these things. And and you just we just have to hope that they are able to do that. But we all know that not only is change coming, but change is really necessary. And to what extent that change is, we just don't know yet. All right. So as we mentioned earlier, there's just um, a couple of games left this season now. And um, we'll quickly go around the scores on the weekend and then talk about a couple of iterations of what may or may not happen in the Premiership in the last couple of games. So... On Friday night, um, Northampton beat Harlequins by a point in a cracking game. Franklin's Gardens, and obviously that was our defeat, although we got a bonus point away at Sale. On Saturday, Gloucester hammered Bath 64-0. Leicester beat Bristol convincingly 56 points to 26, and Worcester lost 16 points to 38 against Saracens. And then finally on Sunday, London Irish had the highest scoring draw in Premiership history. They overturned a 20-odd point deficit to end up drawing with Wasps 42 points apiece. So quite a match there for the neutral, but I think two coaches will be scratching their head a bit, thinking what on earth happened and how come we've only got three points, not five. But there you go. Um, That leaves the Premiership table. If we just work down from the top, Leicester have 86 points, Saracens next on 82, both having played 22 games. So it looks like it'll probably go down to the last game of the season there, unless Saracens don't get a full five points next week. Um, obviously kind of irrelevant because it goes to the playoffs anyway but we've got Harlequins then with 74 Northampton with 68 Gloucester with 67 Exeter with 62 Sale with 61 London Irish with 61 Wasps with 60 and a bit of a gap before Bristol and No Man's Land in 10th place on 43 we've got 33 Worcester have 30 and Bath in last position with 29 so if we just look at the top four positions theoretically any of the top nine except London Irish by virtue of them having played 23 as opposed to 22 games could in theory finish in that fourth position but in reality um, it's probably going to be out of Northampton, Gloucester and then Exeter and Sale have got their work to do but if Sale hadn't forfeited that Boxing Day game against us they'd have been right up there pushing for that fourth position so for all it was quite frustrating for us at the time I think they'll be looking back at that one thinking was that really the right thing to have done but anyway not our problem 
at the bottom of the table, Worcester have played 23 games um, versus us and Bath only playing 22. So with us being three points ahead of Worcester and their last game being against Bath, Worcester have to beat Bath in their last game to overtake us. If they don't, then obviously we don't finish bottom. Bath have to beat London Irish next weekend. Or no, it's not next weekend, is it? Because there's European fixtures, it's two weekends time. So Bath have to beat London Irish in their penultimate game of the season to mean that we have a chance of not finishing bottom. So in all likelihood, that won't happen the way that Bath have been playing as of late. I don't see London Irish dropping points against them. So that therefore means that um, I think we managed to avoid bottom, which obviously is the primary target for any season, but would have been nice to be a bit higher, but there's no way we can finish higher than 11th place now, unless if we wanted to finish in 10th position, not 11th, then we'd have to win both games for bonus points and Bristol not get any points, which let's be honest, quite unlikely. Okay, so if we just do a roundup from around the region, not a huge number of games left at the minute. We'll do a we'll do a full regional roundup in a fortnight's time when all the games have been completed of tables, etc. But the, the matches that have happened this weekend, um, obviously on Friday night, those Falcons game, then in National League One on Saturday, Darlington put in a very good performance against Mosley in Birmingham, uh, winning fifty-two points to twenty-four in League Two North. Tyndale lost to File thirty-eight twenty-six. And Bladen pulled out another win against Loughborough Students, which then takes them third bottom. I think I'm right in saying the bottom three go down in that league, but I may be mistaken because um, sometimes funny things happen with splits into north and south of regions and stuff and the promotion relegation. But Bladen may have pulled themselves out of it, but I haven't, haven't consulted the promotion relegation criteria from National League 2 North. If anyone knows, give us a shout because it would be interesting. Um, then finally, in Durham Northumberland Division 2, we'll read out the scores. There's only four of them. Barnard Castle beat Radka 57-19. Wrighton beat Whitby 33 points nil. Seam lost 31-46 at home to North Shields. And Wynn Leighton lost 7 points to 38 against Bishop Auckland. So I think on balance, the two contenders for Team of the Week, we've got Barnard Castle at Redcote and Donaldson Mountain Park at Mosley. And we'll give it to Donaldson Mountain Park against Mosley, who have been in the top flight in the past, but obviously not for a number of years in the winter administration. But even so, with the Udrat history and very good result for Darlington. Okie dokie. So there we go. Four try bonus point. Something that we'd normally be very pleased with, but we still feel we left a little bit out there and it's a shame not to come away with a victory. So two games left, but a smile on our faces this season. Hopefully we do so and manage to avoid that bottom position and hopefully end up finishing 11th, possibly 10th. But there we go. That's it from me this week. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.